My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor here in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we do this online broadcast, and we desire to take theological principles, biblical narratives and stories, and really all the genres of Scripture, and we desire to immerse ourselves in them, first and foremost, and then apply them to our lives. We want you to support our ministry, and so you can do that by following this online broadcast each and every week. You can make comments in the comment box section underneath on the video on YouTube or whatever channel you listen to it on. You can also follow our Instagram page. You can like our Facebook page. And to financially support us, go to our website, resonatelife.org, and you can go to the Give tab, and you can set yourself up on a reoccurring giving to our ministry that supports this online broadcast, but also supports in-person ministry as, as well. Well, this morning, we are continuing our Advent series, and this online broadcast is about Advent love. We're talking about the topic of love today. It's an important topic. I believe that we fail at this topic um, and this action a lot. We know how to show a lot of unloving behavior. It's very difficult sometimes to show loving behavior. This is why we have volumes and volumes of material written about how to love and what fashion to love, love languages and all this, uh, these ideas that we have about love. One of the challenges that we have as the church is that we are seen as an unloving institution, an unloving gathering of people, and we need to change that reputation. We need to fully engage in, in love. So God asks us throughout Scripture to perform random acts of kindness, that we are to be kindness and perform taking care of, let's say in Scripture it tells us to take care of the orphan and the widow. Maybe that's a metaphor that we can look at just taking care of those that are in need or those that are in the margins. The Bible commands us to do so, and it commands us to have a life of compassion as Jesus had compassion. So if you look up the idea of kindness or useful kindness, you'll see the Greek word kreistotes, which this word basically is useful. It's not just kindness, not just a hey, how's it going? Good to see you. And a little bit of affirmation and a butt pap along the way. Uh, it's, not, it's not like that. It's a useful kindness where we have meaningful deeds, meaningful words, and meaningful action towards others. It's a fulfillment of action. It's a fulfillment of kindness. So this form of love that God commands us is the form that Christ displayed while flesh and blood, that Christ was compassion, that he was love. So some of you have heard this before, uh, the four versions or the four ideas of love. I'm going to cover that again and then get into some new material. You've maybe heard this last Advent season where we talked about love and the four ideas of love. There's four Greek words for love that we're going to cover today, and some of you do know them from other broadcasts. I've, I find these important to cover um, a lot that we need to cover uh, and be 
repetitive about material so that it sinks in, that it sinks into our brains. But you can find these four Greek words of love all over the place. If you just Google the words, you will find them. You will find them in literature. You'll find them in ancient literature like Ulysses and, and such that you will, you will discover that these have been around for a while. So I'm going to briefly talk about each one and illustrate each one for you. And I hope that they sound familiar. Uh, because they really are a part of our culture. So the first is phileo. That is the Greek word for the affection of brotherly affection. That is the affection towards friends. That's the loyalty to friends. That's the community love. That's the love that we have in brother and sisterhood. That is the phileo love of the church, that we have a brotherly, sisterly love in the church towards one another, that we're friends with one another, that it's a kind of love that that is truly at the center of friendship. It's not a romantic love, it is a friendship love. So we have, well, a, a city called Philadelphia, which is the town or the city of brotherly love. So that phileo is an important cultural societal word or societal action or or state of friendship, the phileo love. The next love is storge, and that is exactly how you pronounce that, storge, which is simply a familial love. That is what we have maybe a little broader, deeper, or connection because we are our parents or children or aunts or uncles or cousins or such, that we are connected by familial ties. Definitely goes beyond blood ties because you can be family without having the same blood in your veins. So this is the la familia, the family. So this is the word that describes the affection of family, maybe a child to a mother or father or a father a mother to a child, or brother or sister in the family, not just brotherly like phileo, but definitely deeper or broader as a brother-sister in family. Many of us have experienced this kind of love. Sometimes this love can be threatened in family, depends on your family, and whether or not you would describe it as a dysfunctional family. I think all families are dysfunctional, just some are more dysfunctional than others, but maybe this love has been threatened in your life. Just like phileo, you've lost friends, friends have walked away from you, or you've walked away from friends, and that phileo love has been threatened um, in that as well. So phileo and storge. The next uh, Greek word for love is eros. Eros is never found in the Bible. It actually is what we would uh, say is erotic love. Now, I guess eros or erotic love is not necessarily always seen as love, and I get that. It is the Greek word, though, for erotic behavior. It's, it's, I would say, a cheap form of love, or it's a, it's a downgraded form of love. It's not the romantic love of relationships between, let's say, spouses or partners. It is definitely a cheaper counterfeit type of love, the erotic love, where it definitely has to do with a sexual connotation or sexual relationship. And so this is the kind of cheapened love that you would find 
when people pay for sex or they they pay or look on the internet for for sex and such. So we have this in our culture, this eros type of love. That's the kind of I guess sexual idea that is damaging to ourselves, our ethos, and other relationships as well. And then you have the fourth type of love. This is the God love, where this is the agape love. And of course, the Bible talks about this in a Christ-like form of unconditioned that Christ loves us unconditionally in a genuine type of, of way, an authentic type of, of way. This is the agape love. This is the perfect kind of love that so Christ loved us that we are to love each other in this agape-styled way. So this 1 Corinthian verse that we will show today this first Corinthian kind of love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love never fails. That ending of that verse, first Corinthians, maybe you've heard that before, you'll hear it in this, in this broadcast. But this is the kind of love that God has for you in a perfect, genuine way. And so there's a problem, though, with each forms of these loves, especially phileo, storge, and agape, is they can be threatened, they can be broken, and we need to find reconciliation or do action of reconciliation to heal, heal our feelings, and also then reestablish responsibility in the relationship. A lot of times these forms of love get fragmented or threatened or broken because we have this idea that uh, the different forms of our body, like our mind, what we think about doesn't affect our body, our body doesn't affect our emotions, our emotions doesn't affect our actions. We kind of compartmentalize things in our lives, and so we don't do the hard work emotionally, mentally, physically, to be able to express ourselves in a genuine, authentic way towards our friendships or our relationships, our partners or spouses, or even to God. And so the problem is actually an ancient problem called the mind-body problem, where we separate the mind from the body and the body from the mind, where these different ideas don't have an effect on one another. What I would challenge that and say that our physical life does affect our emotional life, our emotional life does affect our mental life, our mental life affects everything and and our emotional life affects everything and these are the things that when we don't do the hard work or spend the time or invest in these areas of our life we can definitely affect relationships and give ourselves um or or our our expression of ourselves then is fragmented the expression of our of our broken self is fragmented and that can fragment relationships. That's really the point that I wanna bring up with bringing up the mind-body problem. And it's been debated for years of how it all affects one another and does our emotions affect our mind, our mind affect our spirit, our spirit affect the, the other two. I would say that it, it does, and I would argue that it it does. And we do need to do the hard work. We need to spend the time growing emotionally, growing physically, growing mentally, growing spiritually, so we can give ourselves in that agape form. If Christ loved us in a pure form, how are we to 
give a pure form of love, we need to spend the hard work in healing and becoming whole again so that we can give a pure whole emotional state, physical state, mental state, spiritual state to others. So we have to focus on the interrelationship uh, of the um, of the parts of our lives so that we can give a whole self. Well, I believe that we have a deep need as people to be loved. We also have a deep need to love. And so we live our lives this way, that we live our lives with the deep need to receive and also to give love. I don't know if you've ever experienced lonely times. I know the, that each one of us have been alone at times, and we do spend sometimes significant time alone, yet aloneness is not the same as loneliness. Loneliness is more of an emotion or more of an anxiety, I would say, versus a state or of, of being or a state of, of action in your life. Aloneness is you're just alone. So you can be working alone. You can work from home alone. You can work out alone. You can do a lot of things alone that it doesn't produce loneliness. There's other emotions that are going on that cr creates the anxiety of, of loneliness. But the fact that we can become lonely, the fact that we are a lonely people as an American society, that shows that we have a deep need to be loved. And because we see that rampant in our society, I would say that not only is that not being fulfilled, but we are giving each other a fragment of, of what we need. And there needs to be a lot of hard work in order to become whole, to express ourselves in a true agape, agape form. So all of us have experienced a sense of loneliness. All of us have experienced a sense of fragmentation in the phileo form when a friend does something, hurts your feelings, doesn't do something usually, doesn't follow through with something in your life. That creates a fragment in the relationship. So the phileo love becomes fragmented between one another. And so it's difficult to overcome sometimes fragmented relationships because there is so much between the two people. I had a counselor once tell me in uh, a spousal relationship that sometimes a piece of trash will end up in the middle of the two of us. So if I sit across from my wife, Amanda, and we are at a table and we do something, say something, don't do something, don't say something that hurts one another's feelings, whoever's fault it was, whatever happened, maybe both of us did it at the same time, that a piece of trash ends up in between. It could be called whatever it's called, right? It's unreconciled trash that is between us. And pretty soon, over 20 years, 30 years of marriage, then all you eventually see is a big pile of trash. So in order to clear the trash away from the table, that not, doesn't necessarily mean that the other person needs to change. It doesn't necessarily mean that the other person needs to clean the trash. What it usually means, how to clear the trash and how I do that is I need to work on self, that I need to change self because I'm only in, I am in control of who I am and how I express myself. I cannot change another person or force another person to do anything. So our expression of love truly, I believe, is 
reflected because we did the hard work and were able to express love from a pure hard work form that we've worked on the heart. Therefore, we can express our our heart. So first and foremost, we need to realize that God loves us so much. And because he loved us so much, when we do the hard work, we will figure out, wow, God gives us grace and mercy, even when we didn't, let's say, deserve it or thought thought we deserved it. Maybe my self-worth is at that point that I think that I don't deserve anything. And so God comes along and he gives this unconditional love to into my life, speaks it into my mind, into my heart, into my being, immerses me in a sense of, of love, even when I have walked away from God, or let's say I don't even think that God should be giving me that form of grace and mercy in my life. So we first need to realize that God has done this. When we realize that God has loved us so much, that then paves a foundation of action, that paves a foundation that we can walk down this new road, this new life, this new creation, the Bible calls it, that we are able to walk along that now new road in a new direction with a new name, new reputation, and a new sense of wholeness inside of us that therefore I can now do, since I have that foundation, I now have a better chance of doing the hard work that I can express love in more of a pure way. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says it says this, brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through through it if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless somehow you believed it was for nothing. I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So this is the most important. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. He appeared to these people. He appeared to 500 people. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last he appeared, Paul says, he appeared to me. So when you read that, you see that Christ died for us, that Christ rose for us, that he gave us eternal life. He forgave our sins and he called us clean. He called us whole. He called us reconciled. So when we're faced in this life with this question, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? You can say he's my savior. He's my Messiah. He's my He's my friend. He's my God. He is all of these descriptions. So you have to come up with an answer to that question when faced with who is Jesus. And so 1 Corinthians 15 tells me who Jesus is. Now, for the lifetime of the church, right, since the beginning of Christianity, we have spent a lot of time trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? We have lots and lots of theology uh, about who is is Jesus and lots of answers to that question. We'll come back to that here in, in a minute. If you look at Mark 8, 31, 
It says this, then Jesus began to teach his disciples, the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and priests and legal experts and be killed and then after three days rise from the dead. He said this plainly. Peter, of course, took hold of Jesus and said he didn't want this to happen. And so Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then sternly corrected Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. So he calls this crowd together. Jesus says, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So again, we see that Jesus basically is predicting, is prophesying his own death and resurrection. And so obviously Jesus knew who he was. The Bible is clear about who Jesus is. Now the question is, do I believe that? And because I believe that, what do I do with that? Because I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what do I do with that? Well, we have in our culture a great deal of cheap love. We have in our culture a great deal of cheap grace, easy love, easy grace. The sacrifice of Christ is the hard grace. That is the hard kind of love that Christ actually died to love the world. A lot of times in our, in our lives, our everyday lives, we don't really even think about that. We don't think about Christ dying for us, being sacrificed for us, and then the therefore. And because we don't think about it very often, maybe you think about it once a day, maybe you think about it once a week, once a month, once a year. I have no idea where you are in your faith. But if you only think about that every once in a while and spend time with that question, who is Jesus to you and who is Jesus to us, it, it, a lot of times we, we grow apathetic. We just have an apathy towards just life in general or God in general. And so we are not necessarily sensing an, an importance of carrying this sacrifice of Christ, this good news message of Christ, this resurrection of Christ, this, this grace of Christ. We don't necessarily see an urgency to carry that forward. So we're just kind of apathetic. Okay, Jesus did this for me a long, a long time ago. Well, God tells us because of this, because of the good news, because of the, the death, burial, and resurrection and the promise that he was going to come again, we are, because of that, because we were given so much, we are to give to others. Because Christ was kind and merciful and graceful to us, we are to be kind, merciful, and gracious to, to others. So love is the expression of, of the good news. Love is the expression of the cross. Love is ex the expression of, of grace. And so Jesus says, basically, I am. That's what he says, that he knew that he was, he was God and he might be your savior. You might say that he is the one that, that gives you eternal life. All that is true. And he's also the one that puts us on this mission to love your neighbor. That is where life gets a little difficult. That's where life gets a little bit um, sticky because loving your neighbor becomes uh, difficult. You know your neighbors, you know the people around you, you know your friends, and people are difficult. And so to love difficult people is a difficult exercise. It's a difficult idea. But love 
Here's a quote for you. Love is the only sane and satisfactory answer to the problem of human existence. Love is the only sane and satisfactory answer to the problem of human existence. So there's there's nothing else to give society, I think. You can work and give society your economy. You can give society those kinds of contributions. Yet the challenges to the human existence are not fixed through economy. The challenges through human existence are not fixed necessarily through politics. Those might be vehicles, but those are not the answer to our problems of human existence. The only answer to the challenges and the disruptions and the fragmentation of our human existence in this society and this culture, the only satisfactory answer, the only sane answer is to love and to figure out new expressions, fresh expressions of loving your neighbor. You might think that this is an old topic and we do talk about it a lot and how to love your neighbor. What I want to talk about right now is how do we find new expressions of this love? What is a new expression of love as we deal with new challenges and new fragmentations of human existence? There is an author by the name of Bell Hooks uh, who died actually on Wednesday and this last Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. And she wrote a book called All About Love. And I want to read an excerpt uh, from this book. It'll be up on the screen. Of course, all credit uh, is given to uh, this person, Bell Hooks, number one, for for this work. And so I'm going to give the credit, but also to show you um, on this online broadcast, the book and the link to actually order it yourself, because I think that it's great. And, and they are a great author uh, that I believe that uh, can contribute to your life. All about love. That was her, that was her work. And it says this, this quote, taught to believe that the mind, not the heart, is the seat of learning, many of us believe that to speak of love with any emotional intensity means we will be perceived as weak or irrational. And it is especially hard to speak of love when what we have to say calls attention to the fact that lovelessness is more common than love, that many of us are not sure that what we mean when we talk about love or how to express love. Everyone wants to know more about love. We want to know what it means to love, what we can do in our everyday lives to love and to be loved. We want to know how to seduce those among us who remain wedded to lovelessness and open the door to their hearts to let love enter. The strength of our desire does not change the power of our cultural uncertainty. Everywhere we learn that love is important and yet we are bombarded by its failure. In the realm of the political, among the religious, in our families, and in our romantic lives, we see little indication that love informs decisions, strengthens our understanding of community, or keeps us together. This bleak picture in no way alters the nature of our longing. 
We still hope that love will prevail. We still believe in love's promise. So we believe that love will prevail, and we still believe in love's promise because love is definitely a filter. Love is a motivating um, state of being. Love is is a motivating action, and it also is our nature, that love is a part of our nature. Therefore, it it dominates sometimes our thoughts, and it also it also motivates us to take certain actions and have certain compassions and have certain passion in our lives. So as a church, in the church universal, I mean, we have spent a very, very long time talking about who is Jesus. And I just mentioned that, who is Jesus, and we spend a lot of theological arguments about who is Jesus. I don't think that's a bad question. I think it's a decent question. It's an exhaustive question. Uh, There's lots of reading to do on that question. Uh, Yet that question really never gets to the flesh and blood. It never gets to the boots on the ground kind of theology. And and really sometimes we spend our our mind in the clouds and, and not in reality. Then for a while, probably back in what, the late 90s or or maybe before, we had these bracelets, and not only who was Jesus or who is Jesus, we tried to answer the question, what would Jesus do? Uh, And that was just yet another question that was literally impossible to answer, because I had no idea what Jesus would do in these situations. I didn't read certain situations in Scripture. I didn't read certain, I guess, situational ethics uh, type of of problems in scripture, so I had no idea what Jesus would do. All I knew that Jesus might have loved in this situation, or had compassion in this situation, or had a certain, I guess, uh, language, or articulated himself in a certain way in different in different uh, situations. But that was literally an impossible question to ask. So we spent a lot of time and centuries talking about who is Jesus, and then we have this question, what would Jesus do? I think that those are good questions, yet kind of irrelevant questions, um, if if you want to know how I really feel about them, uh, because we've spent exhaustive time on them and the answers to them are pretty plain and pretty in front of us. I think we need to answer a new question for a new era. And we don't spend a lot of time on this question uh, because we like to shame and blame and point fingers and such. But I think it's a question that has emerged through our pandemic and has emerged through our cultural crisis uh, over the last uh, 20, 20 months. And this is the question, what do I do? That's a good question. What do I do? I want to do something. What do I do? I can talk about what Jesus would do. I can talk about who is Jesus. I can talk all day long what I think you should do. But a better question and the most relevant question right now, because Jesus loves me, I know that. Because he's my savior, I read that. Because he promises me eternal life in the Christian story of the gospel message, I can put my faith in that. And because my family loves me, and because I have good friends, and because I have a spiritual community, and I have a job, and I have all these things, what do I do? Because of these things, what do I do? What is my contribution? And I believe that we need to develop more, not just acts of kindness randomly or or necessarily. Those are great, 
but yet we need to have more of a robust form of love. We need to have a more broadened sense and broadened perspective of, of how can I love and in what fashions am I gifted to love? And we call that a, a love ethic. There's an ethic of love. It's not just a it's not just an action that I do every once in a while. It's how I inform my decisions. It's how I inform my actions. It's how I inform my schedule that I have a love ethic. And individuals who choose to love in an ethic literally alter their lives. They literally alter, and the, and the primary way that they do this is through a love ethic that all decisions are informed, all actions are informed, all relationships are informed through love. Could you imagine you wake up every each and every day and your love ethic, which informs your decisions, how you respond to the people around you first thing in the morning when you show up to work, first thing in, in the morning or in the afternoon or late at night whenever you actually go to work physically and you are in front of people, or maybe it's not physically, it's in front of Zoom or whatever, that you actually have a love ethic, that you inform your decisions based on that. It's not about selfish desire. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. It's not about getting all that you can. It's not about making the most money. It's not about just a it's not about buying. It's not about materialists. It's not about any of that. It's about love. And that is called a love ethic. So I'm going to end with this because I think this is a profound quote about the idea of love ethics and having a love ethic in our life. And back to all about love and honoring bell hooks and, and their life. I just want to end with this. They go on to say, we do this, and this is speaking about let's say this idea of love ethic. We do this by choosing to work with individuals we re admire and respect, by committing to give our all to relationships, by embracing a global vision wherein we see our lives and our fate as intimately connected to those of everyone else on the planet. Commitment to a love ethic transforms our lives by offering us a different set of values to live by. That's my hope and my prayer today that you would begin to develop that kind of ethic in your life and that this just wouldn't be some topic or some idea or some actions, one single one-off action in your life. That The ethic that you develop, that maybe you write down, that maybe it's just one, two, three, four, fifty ideas, thoughts, that love would begin to inform who you are. Love would begin to inform what you do. And love would begin to inform what you say, how you behave, and how you respond to others. That loving our neighbor would be more of an ethic than an action. It would be greater than just one simple thing. It would be our everything, everything that we do. It would be everything that we are. Thanks for joining us today.